For many years, Sandy Island was listed on maps, world maps and marine charts and all kinds of maps. Do you see it there? Sandy Island right there, kind of in the, the corner of the, the picture. The problem was um, that, that this little island west of New Caledonia and off the east coast of Queensland, Australia in the Coral Sea never actually existed. It was just on a map. It never was in the ocean, never ever existed. Somebody just drew it there and caught, ma made a name on the map and everybody else copied it and copied it and copied it and copied it for years and years and years. In fact, I, I hear that there are some map makers that use fake places on their maps as identifiers so that they know what material is being copied, right? A map is a copyrighted work. They put a lot of, of, of work into that cartography. I think that's how you call it, right? And, and so if somebody else was to copy their work and not do their own work, well, that would be illegal. That would be copyright infringement. And so they put these, these fake places to try to um, demonstrate in a court of law that somebody else has copied their copyrighted work. Well, for whatever reason, Sandy Island didn't exist. And yet it was on maps. Is it possible that there are things, maybe in the Christian world, that have been copied and copied and copied and copied and just repeated and said and believed without actually being true? Do you think that's possible? That something could exist that's just not true, but everybody thinks it is. Well, the book of Revelation speaks about a time when that's actually going to happen. And so we're going to look at a little bit more in the subject um, of the Sabbath tonight. But we're going to look at it from the other perspective, not what the Bible talks about uh, so much as the opposite, what the Bible doesn't say. Because the whole of Christianity seems to have dismissed the Sabbath and in its place done something quite different when it comes to worship. Revelation 12.9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives how much of the world? The whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So I want you to notice that, that this is a worldwide phenomenon. The devil's deception, it impacts everybody. Back in the garden, Satan deceived Adam and Eve, and Jesus ended up referring to him when he was on earth as the father of lies. He's the source of all the lies in this world. Now, Satan, he's looking to deceive people, all the people in the world, but especially those that live down at the end of time. Why do you think that it would be so important to deceive the people at the end of time? Is it possible that people making a decision about Christ right before he comes, they might be the most important catches, so to speak, of, of Satan's efforts to deceive? Satan is a powerful deceiver. Now, I, I don't want you to think um, that uh, Satan's deceptions are the, you know, the, the, the picture that we often have of Satan. He's the guy in the red suit with the pointy tail and the horns and the pitchfork, right? If we have that view of Satan, then, then anything that somebody like that says, anything that's ugly and terrible, well, we would just dismiss it and say, no, that's not true. But no, that Satan doesn't appear to us that way. He... He, uh, well, 
The Bible says he appears to us as an angel of light. He, he sugarcoats things. He, he mixes sweet things with his deceptions. So they sound good, they feel good, and we want his deception rather than uh, rejecting it. In John 8, Jesus, he contrasts Satan's deception, and he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word. And then he adds, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, there are truths, as in facts and, you know, realities, but we also should remember that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Jesus is the truth, not just, not just the list of doctrines or something like that. Uh, no, Jesus is saying that the truth will make you free. Jesus will make you free. So, if God's Word is where we find hope, if that's where we have security, then we can find that the, the Word of, of Jesus, God's Word, will make us free and, and will keep us from the deceptions that the devil really wants to, to um, trip us up with, especially at the end of time. Jesus, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So not just facts and figures, but Jesus is truth. And Jesus expressing himself through the inspired word of God is truth. It's not uncommon for people today to say, you know, I believe in God. I'm not really a Christian, but I believe in God. And, and there's good things in the Bible. It's, it's just a really nice book. It's got really good morals. Um, but there's also good things in Buddhism and, and some of the Hindu doctor, um, uh, you know, uh, documents and things, uh, teachings. And, uh, and there's some really great stuff in, and you know, you just, the list goes on and on. But the problem with that is that we make ourselves the judge of what is right and what is wrong, what we'll accept and what we won't. If God's Word is truly a revelation from God, the creator of all mankind, then I cannot be the arbiter of what is right and wrong. I have to let God tell me. My life is not the, the thing that determines truth. God's Word is what speaks into my life and determines if my morals and my values and my direction in life and my actions and my thoughts are God's plan. We found together uh, the other night that uh, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's the fourth commandment given by God in Eden. It was written on the Ten Commandments on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai and given to the Israelites again. And he said, what did he say? Did he say, keep for the first time the Sabbath? No, he said, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then we found that Jesus kept the Sabbath in the tomb. Remember that? He kept the Sabbath as a custom during his life, but he also kept the Sabbath even when he died. He died on Friday and rose on Sunday and, and kept the Sabbath in the middle. We found that his disciples kept the Sabbath and, and that Christians, even in Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, that Christians would be keeping the Sabbath um, some 39 years after Jesus' resurrection. We also found from Isaiah that we'd be keeping the Sabbath in heaven. So those are some of the things that we found yesterday. We, said we found that the Sabbath gives us rest from the busyness of life. It's a time for us to connect with each other, a time to connect with God. And we also found that God set this up as a memorial of His powerful and perfect and good work of creation. And also that it's a reminder of God's power 
in redeeming us and saving us. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the devil comes to attack the Sabbath. Now, there's two things that were given to us in the garden. When everything was perfect, we got the Sabbath and we got marriage, two institutions that were contractual relationships. One was a memorial of our, our relationship with God and His powerful creation. The other, a, a contract between a husband and his wife, marriage and the Sabbath. Does God attack marriage today? Thank you for correcting me. Does Satan attack marriage today? <laughs> yes, he does. And Satan has, a, has attacked the Sabbath as well. We look at the Ten Commandments, we see the Sabbath right there in the middle between everything else. It's at the heart of the Ten Commandments. The time that God wants to spend with us is right there in the center. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son or daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle or the stranger that's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We have this really special time, 24-hour period, where God says, I want to spend time with you. It's a gift, a, a holiday every week. Not an, an onerous thing that requires our begrudging obedience. No, it's a joyful thing that invites our, our enthusiastic participation. I, I'd like to suggest that the only onerousness about the Sabbath is when we put our own weird ideas and restrictions on God's holy day. Not, not God's intention. So a couple facts. Fact number one, God gave us the Sabbath for mankind. Now, fact number two, most people don't remember the Sabbath. Is that obvious from, from your experience and from what we've read in the Bible? So the Sabbath was given back in the Garden of Eden and uh, I think we talked about it on Wednesday, but if, if the Sabbath had been changed, would God have said something about it? Yeah, God would have said something about it. It's such a big deal. He gives it in the Garden of Eden on the, the tables of stone on Mount Sinai. He keeps it, Jesus keeps it when he's living on earth. Why would he not have said something if the Sabbath were to have been changed? And yet, for some reason, Nearly all of Christianity has forgotten the Sabbath. And some even suggest that the Bible gives us a new directive to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, some would say it's the, the um, celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And, uh, and we already talked about the, the ideas about doing away with the law, and we've determined that that couldn't have been the Ten Commandment moral law, because God did not do away with thou shalt not kill. He didn't do away with thou shalt not commit adultery. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, and, and why would he have done away with honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Remember the Sabbath day. He didn't. He didn't do away with it. So what are these other texts? Um, there's, there's a lot of times that... Um, we find the Sabbath mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible, even in the New Testament. But there are eight times that Sunday is mentioned in the New Testament. But it's only mentioned as the first day of the week. We didn't get our... Uh, the Bible is 
the first day, second day, sixth day, seventh day. It doesn't talk about Monday, Sunday, Saturday. It doesn't use those terms. So when it talks about the first day, we're talking about Sunday. And i just like to look at each of those verses and see what is the Bible saying? Is it giving us some suggestion that the early church was keeping Sunday as a Sabbath? Does it give us a command? Um, what, what is it saying? So the first one is in John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. It's the first day of the week. Jesus is meeting with the disciples. They've met together up in the upper room. Obviously, this is a, a Sabbath meeting, a church service, right? Or is that what the Bible says? What, what's the reason that they're meeting? They're meeting for fear. Did they even know Jesus was alive when they had this meeting in John chapter 20? No, no, this is resurrection morning, and these were men who were depressed because Jesus had died and they had no idea what was going on. These were not the men that had gone down to the, the tomb and seen that Jesus was not there. They hadn't yet got that full message yet, and they were quaking with fear that they would be next on the cross. And so Jesus appears in their midst and says, peace, stop being afraid. His point was not to establish a new Sabbath. His point was to comfort the disciples and give them the news that he had been resurrected. Another common question comes up regarding 1 Corinthians 16, uh, where it supposedly says that an offering was collected in church on Sunday. But, but let's look at what it actually says. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So Paul isn't telling them to give an offering in church. If he was saying that, he would have said that. When you meet in church on Sunday, put your offerings together, right? That's what he would have said. But he didn't say that. He said, let everybody lay something beside them. Where, where are they on Sunday? They're at home. Let everybody lay up something on the side. This is, he's asking them to, if, if he was talking to my wife, uh, my wife likes to do the budgeting in our house. I, actually, I don't know if she likes to do it. She, probably that's a little bit of a stretch, but she does it, and, and I'm grateful. She has, um, every month when we get money, um, thankfully, uh, I, I do get paid for working. And uh, so every month when I get money, she takes that and she has it split into all these different categories. And a little bit goes into to, to paying for college at some point. Uh, we'd like our kids to have an education. And a little bit goes into, well, actually, that's about everything we can say for right now. But um, <laughs> we've got maybe a dozen different bank accounts for different things. And of course, we, we send some money um, to some missionaries and some various places. But uh, we have these bank accounts. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. He would have said to, to Joel, my wife, he would have said, Joel, please uh, create one of those bank accounts for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They're struggling and they need our help. Please put some money aside so that when I come, you don't have to be scrounging around for scraps. We want to give them a good gift. And then in Acts 18, Paul says this, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. 
And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So when, when Paul was in Corinth, he was reasoning with them on what day? He, he met with them in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Don't you think that um, if he was going to suggest a collection on Sundays, he would have met with them on Sunday. What was it? Was it uh, 1 Corinthians 16 where we read this? Well, here in Acts 18, he sets up the church based on Sabbath keeping. He would have said at some point, let's change this up. He would have told them in 1 Corinthians or maybe in Acts that we're going to do something new. We're going to actually worship on Sundays. And, and then they would have understood that the, the collection would have been, would have been uh, corporate. But that's not what he did. So let's keep going, Acts 20, and, and we, we find uh, a, new, a new story, and another story of Paul, actually. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and now there's where a lot of people stop, and they say, see, that is the, um, the, the Eucharist, or that's the, the, the Lord's Supper, and they do that on Sabbath. And you know, that's true. They did do that on Sabbath. The culture of the Christian church was such that their, their liturgy, it, it began with a prayer and some Bible reading, and maybe one of the, the elders would have said some wise things about what they just read, and maybe they read a, a, a letter from Paul. If you were in Corinth, you would have read 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and, and then the elders would have said something about applying that. And then afterwards, they would have prayed a blessing, and, and they all would have had brought out their food, and uh, they would have had their, their bread and their grape juice and a variety of other foods there. And, and before they started eating, they'd, they'd uh, have a prayer and a blessing over the bread and the grape juice. And, and they, would, they would eat those things in remembrance of Jesus' death every Sabbath. But then they'd keep eating. They had a potluck. That was the beginning of their potluck. And they do that every, every week. But they didn't just do it every week. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And so they, they would have communion, essentially, uh, anytime they could get together. And they also had something that we call theologians. I'm not, I'm not a theologian, so I can't say we, but that they say is uh, table fellowship. And that was just eating together. And we're not certain if breaking bread was a communion service or not, but even if it was a communion service, it, it didn't have to have been on Sabbath. But this particular one, it does tell us where he was and when it was. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they had gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep, possibly because of all those lamps, filling the, the, uh, the room with smoke, and also possibly because Paul was talking a really, really long time. And as Paul continued speaking, Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Uh, the, the story doesn't end there. Paul goes down, raises him from the dead. Really cool story. But, but we need to learn a couple lessons. First of all, we should learn that uh, I shouldn't speak until midnight. It is not good for your health. Also, you should keep awake because falling asleep might be bad for your health. Um, okay, so, but, but there, there's more to learn. This particular story, it, it started when the day had just begun because it ended around midnight. 
Okay? When does the day start in, in the Bible? Sunset. That's right. The day ends at sunset, and, and we don't have a break between days. It just, time just keeps rolling on. So the next day begins as soon as the last day ends. So at sunset, we have the end of yesterday and the beginning of today. And, and uh, according to the Bible, um, Leviticus 23, 32 from evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Or Mark 1, 32, at evening when the sun had set. The, the idea is that Paul was talking to them on the first day of the week, which would have been, in our modern time, what part of the day? Saturday night. Hmm. So Saturday night, they just keep talking. This is Paul. He, he's about to be... Uh, sent to Rome, and, and he's, he's not going to be able to come back again. He's being taken to his, to his sentencing and ultimately to his death. And so Paul is, is pleading with them and preaching with them and sharing time with them and en enjoying time with them as much as he can, and they are just soaking it up. They want to hang out with Paul. This is not what he normally does. And, and so they, they maybe have a church service on Sabbath, and they, uh, I don't know, maybe they go hike on um, to, to the... Uh, to the springs um, on, <laughs> on the Sabbath afternoon. Probably not. Probably they hang out there at the, at the house church that they were at. And, and then it keeps going. They, they break bread together in the evening, and then he keeps talking, and he gets to midnight, and Eutychus falls out of the window. Well, anyway, after that, Paul ends up going to bed. He sleeps, and he wakes up in the light part of the first day of the week. And so now it's Sunday morning, our time, and Paul walks 14 miles now, however, many, however long you're comfortable hiking, a Jew who knew how to keep the Sabbath wouldn't have been comfortable walking 14 miles. The Jews had a one-mile rule. They were a little legalistic about it. If, you, if on Friday you put a little bit of lunch at the end of that mile, you could, you could walk the mile and eat a snack and walk another mile. They, were, they, they had it all worked out. Paul, he, he wouldn't have walked 14 miles on the Sabbath day to get onto a boat. But in this story, on Sunday morning, Paul walks 14 miles to where the, the boat was anchored, and, and he gets on the boat. This is not a story about a new Sabbath day. It's not an example. It's not a command. It's just a story of Paul hanging out with Christians before he has to leave. Malachi 3.6 makes this statement about God. I am the Lord, I do not change. And why would he want to change this? We mentioned the Sabbath is a memorial of completed creation. If we were to worship God on the first day of the week, we'd be worshiping the God of light and darkness. But on the Sabbath, we get to worship the God of all creation, the God of perfection, the God of goodness and beauty and, and provision and, and everything. God, God has a purpose in this specific day. A big challenge many people face is the culture around them. My friends, my neighbors, my family, they don't, uh, they don't believe this. It would be hard. Or maybe it's work. Um, and and there, there's challenges to making a change in one's life. And if you look around and you say, well, everybody else is doing it, is that a good standard? Is that a good basis for morality? No, I don't think so. What, what about preachers? That preacher on TV, he is so dynamic, they even bought him a, 
a several million dollar jet. He must be telling the truth. Oh, maybe that was a little sarcastic. Um, let's, let's get closer to home. My pastor is just so wonderful. He knows the Bible inside and out. He couldn't be wrong, could he? Could all of Christianity be wrong? Remember, we started with Satan seeks to deceive the whole world. His goal is that he would trip us up and keep us from following God's Word. We need to find truth in God's Word, not in some wise person, and I'm not even including myself in that category, um, certainly not in me. We need to find truth in God's Word. It says two times in the Gospels that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. There's one other place that people think that the first day of the week is suggested. Some people call Sunday the Lord's Day. And they suggest that when Revelation is, was written, John writing, I was in the Spirit, in, in, in a prophetic revelation, on the Lord's Day, that what he's saying is he was having this revelation on Sunday. Well, okay. But, but Jesus... He says twice in the Gospels that he's Lord of the Sabbath. So when we get to Revelation 1.10 and, and we say, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, what makes more sense? To look backwards from what we now call the Lord's Day, what many Christians call the Lord's Day today, and say, well, that's what he was talking about. Or does it make more sense to go back to John's time and look at what John's experience was, where his Lord and Master said that the Sabbath was his day? I think it makes more sense contextually, historically, to say that Jesus' standard was what John was using when he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So I can confidently tell you that Revelation 1.10, John was in the Spirit on the Sabbath day. Acts 5.29, the, the, the disciples were in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin said, stop preaching about Jesus. Don't do it anymore. And they looked at them, and with boldness, probably some politeness too, they said, we ought to obey God rather than man. What makes this so important? What makes it so important is, is that it's important to Jesus. You know, Jesus worked all kinds of miracles to defend and support and undergird the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 16, before the Ten Commandments were even given, we have miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Every time that the manna fell, twice a week there was a miracle. You see, if you got manna on a Monday, right at the beginning of the day in the morning, when the dew was still out, you could go out and you could pick up these little grains of manna. And, and you could cook them and you could bake them and you could eat them raw and apparently they tasted kind of like honey. So then if you were to have too much, by the next morning, what you gathered on Monday morning would have spoiled. That was a miracle. Well, at least it was what God designed it for, so maybe it's not a miracle, but every day it would spoil. It'd have maggots, it'd have all kinds of stuff. So then on Friday night, or Friday morning rather, you were supposed to get twice as much, not, not just one day's worth, but two days' worth of manna. And it would take a little bit of faith because if, if for, for five day or six days you'd been picking up manna, for five days you'd been picking up manna, and you, you, any leftovers 
had gotten, gone bad, well, you wouldn't want stinky maggots in your, in, in your tent, would you? So it took a bit of faith to gather twice as much on Friday. So then they gathered twice as much, and God worked a miracle, and it did not go bad. It was good on Sabbath. But then he worked another miracle, because Sabbath morning, no manna. Every single week, five days of manna, or six days of manna. Uh, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much. It didn't go bad. On the seventh day, no manna. Five days of, of, of regular manna, a six-day double. Didn't go bad. Sabbath, no manna. Again and again and again and again and again and again for 40 years, this miracle was performed. Do you think that the, that the Jews understood when the Sabbath was? It was important to God, and, and so it became important to the Jews. If you go back to the 4th century, you discover that the Roman Empire was fractured. And Constantine was the emperor at the time. This is 330-ish uh, time frame, B, uh, A.D. Constantine was the emperor, and he had kind of gone through this conversion experience. And if you read the story, you kind of have some big questions about it, so... Uh, but, but we'll just give it to him. We'll just say he became a Christian and, and, and let God worry about the results, shall we? Anyway, uh, he was looking politically, uh, and, and he said, you know what, the best way for us to join our nation is to get the pagans and the Christians talking the same language. That seems like a politically expedient thing to do. And so, so what he does is he notices that in the Christian church, there had been some persecution in the past couple hundred years. And, uh, and a couple of things had happened. First of all, the Jews had persecuted the Christians and, and said, you're not part of us. And then the Romans had persecuted the Christians and said, you're not part of us. You're just one of those Jews. And so they tried to distinguish themselves. And uh, so what they would do is, is they would, they would uh, maybe fast on the Sabbath day, and then they would have kind of a social celebration on Sunday. And before long, they kind of got bored of the fasting, and so they just dropped the fasting, and they were kind of keeping Sunday as though it was a Sabbath, distinguishing themselves from the Jews. And Constantine saw this, and he said, I have got an opportunity. And so he created a law in 321 AD. And he says this, on the venerable day of the sun, what day is that? Sunday, not too hard to figure that out. Let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities and let shops be closed. The sun, uh, and, and this is uh, from a quote from 1994, the Catholic Encyclopedia. The sun was a foremost god. Actually, I'm not sure if it's Catholic Encyclopedia. We'll find out in just a second. The sun was a foremost god with heathendom. There is, in truth, something royal, kingly about the sun, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the son of justice. Hence, the church in these countries would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name. It shall remain consecrated, sanctified, and thus the pagan Sunday, dedicated to Balder, became the Christian Sunday, sacred to Jesus. The first record of a Sunday worship as a command is not found in the Bible. It's not found by Jesus. It's found by a pagan turned some kind of Christian emperor who wanted to unite his kingdom and then accepted by Christianity. Hmm. Do you think that's a good change of the Sabbath? Is that a good way to change God's laws? 
Another quote, Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but the Lord's Day they shall especially honor. You can see that challenge that they were having distinguishing Christianity from Judaism. But the Lord's Day they shall especially honor, and as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, they shall be shut out from Christ. They shall be excommunicated. And that's the Council of Laodicea in 364 A.D., just a maybe 40 years, a little bit over 40 years after Constantine's rule. It's now become a Christian law, not just an, a national law, but a, a Christian church law, doctrine, so to speak. So this is found in the Converts Catechism. Um, I actually have one in my office if anybody wants to look at one. I've got a, a really old copy. Uh, I should have brought it up here. Anyway, it's it, the question. You know how a catechism works? If you've ever seen one, they're a question and answer form. And the question is any random question you might think of, and the answer is the church's response um, to, to this. And I, I, I should say, when I say the church, I'm talking about back in the day. There, there wasn't denominations for a long, long time. It wasn't until about 900 to 1100 A.D. that we really had a big schism in the Christian church. Before that, it was simply the universal church. There was the, uh, the church in Rome and the church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi and the church in lots of places. Um, but they were all kind of connected and they all met together and they all, you know, were generally happy with each other. Um, and, and sometimes North Africa was kind of a leading movement in the Christian uh, church, and sometimes it was Italy and Rome, and sometimes it was in Constantine, or wherever, uh, or Constantinople. But, um, but it was generally united. And then there's this schism that happens in the, the um, Eastern Orthodox, splits off from the Catholic Church. And then there was Martin Luther and all of the other reformers in the, fifth, the 16th and 17th centuries, and then all these denominations started popping up. And so it's kind of a modern thing. So when I say the Christian church, I'm really thinking about the entirety of the Christian church back in this time. And, and so the Catholic church, the universal church, um, formed these responses and these doctrines. And today we get a catechism that speaks to all of those ideas through history. Question, which day, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Hmm, that's how it happened. Does the church have any authority to change the law of God? Some might say, but, but God said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Jesus also said, pray in my name. My will that's how you should ask. If you ask anything according to my will, it will be done for you. Not if you ask anything according to your own will, I will bind it in heaven. That, that's, that's not the message God has ever given to his church. And no authority has ever been given to God's church to change God's law. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day to the first day of the week, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Now, you have to understand that at this time, there's some things going on. Around the time that Constantine brings in the Sabbath and tries to unite paganism and, and, and uh, uh, Christianity, he, they, they, they were making some other compromises. So, for example, um, what, what's that, the god Zeus? 
I think it's uh, Zeus is like this um, Greek Roman god, whatever. Anyway, there's a statue um, outside uh, in in Rome somewhere, and it's and it's a, a statue of I believe it's Zeus, and. And the Catholic Church, or the Christian Church at the time, it uh, kind of adopted it. And it said, you know what, uh, we used to call that Zeus, but let's call it Peter now. And so now that same statue that's been there for centuries wasn't created new. Um, it's the statue of Peter. That's St. Peter, they'd say. They'll put a new plaque on it, call it a new name, but same, same um, idols. And that's really what happened. Because the third commandment is, thou shalt not make any idols, Right? bow down and worship them. Well, the, the church, it, it kind of adopted all of these images and said they're, they're just fine, it's not a problem, and, and to cover up that problem, uh, they just removed that commandment. And so now the, the Sabbath command was no longer the fourth, it became the third, and, and uh, in order to keep ten commandments, they took the tenth commandment, where it says don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't cover your, covet your neighbor's things, and they split it into two. And so the ninth commandment is don't covet, and the tenth commandment is don't covet. Anyway, that's, the, that's kind of the background. So they say, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Carl Keating wrote a book called Fundamentalism and Catholicism, and he said, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that cor um, corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. Hmm. Another quote from Cardinal James Gibbons in Faith of Our Fathers, a book that he wrote. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided that Sunday should be the day of worship, the day that Christians should honor this as the Sabbath. And no church has the right to do this. So the question is, what's going to be our guide? How do we determine what moral truth is? Do we go by tradition? Or do we go by God's word? You know, this is a really blatant, obvious, this isn't God's word type of scenario, but, but are there ways in our lives, maybe not in this particular way in Sabbath keeping, but are there ways in our lives that we take tradition and we make that God's truth instead of going to God's Word and taking it as it simply reads. I think we could learn a lot about taking God's Word as our foundation for, for our, our lives and for our values. The question really is, who made you? Who designed you with His hands? Who died to save you? Who, who gave His life to redeem you? That's where your value needs to be put. Not on what some pastor says or what some tradition of some church is. Not on the challenges you might face, but, but on Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Is there anything that you wouldn't want to do? Anything that would keep you from surrendering your life to Jesus? Sometimes it isn't easy because of maybe personal history or cultural background or personal financial situations or whatever it is. But it's important that we look at God's Word and we take it by faith as for what it says. And we say, yes, God, I'll do that. 
my kids are five or four and six. And at four and six, there's this struggle with the will. Actually, I think it's all the lifelong, but I'm seeing it at four and six. And so I'll ask them to do something, or Joelle will ask them to do something, and, and they just won't even acknowledge that we've said something sometimes. It, it just happened this evening. Uh, my wife asked Joelle, I mean, asked uh, Adeline to stop uh, being really rowdy. And Adeline just kept on doing what she was doing. And Joelle asked again. And then she asked a third time. And finally, Adeline stopped. I think sometimes the Bible is like that in our lives. We read the Bible, and we're like, that's nice, God, glad you said that. I'm going to ignore it for a while. I kind of like what I'm doing right now. And then we read it again, or we hear it in another context, and God is, God is probing or um, encouraging us, uh, please obey me. And we say, you know what, no, no, I don't want to listen to you right now. I've, I've got something I really want to do. After I'm done with my thing, then I'll listen to you. Friends, when we read God's word, I, I pray that our hearts would be tender and soft, that we would do what I tell my daughter to do, stop and listen, and then say, yes, Father, I'll obey. Would you like to do that today? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Everything is based on our love with God, our love for God and his love for us. It's not, it's not based on some legalistic list of requirements. It base, it's based on God wanting to spend time with us and knowing what's best for us. And, and we look forward to Jesus' soon coming, and we know that Jesus is going to take us home with him so that we can spend eternity with him. Is obedience to his word today such an, a hard thing? I don't think so. I'd like, I'd like you to listen to this song as you think about what, uh, what we just talked about. It's the song I wanted to play on Wednesday night if you were here then, and I, I didn't work out. Uh, and it's called A Temple Made in Time. Feel the fury of the rabbis who 
God's gift is so good, isn't it? You know, we've talked about God's law on Tuesday. We've talked about the Sabbath on Wednesday. Now we've talked about how the Sabbath had been changed by um, probably well-meaning, but uh, completely wrong um, Christian leaders. And you wonder why we've spent so much time on this. And of course, we're meeting a Seventh-day Adventist church and, and it's tempting to say, well, there's, there's too much emphasis being put on this. Uh, I just want to say there, there's no reason that we shouldn't put as much emphasis on worship only God or don't take the name of the Lord in vain or a, any number of the Ten Commandments. Yet it's the fourth commandment that says remember, and it's the fourth commandment that mankind has generally forgotten. And so it's not a bad thing to say, let's remember. And by putting our focus 
on the center of God's law and the relationship that he wants to have with us, we, ex- we, we enter into a, a relationship of obedience in all the other nine laws. Really, we establish the foundation of a loving relationship that allows us, through God's Spirit, to be obedient in every aspect of our lives. This is not a, we're not overemphasizing the Sabbath. We're simply putting the foundation back where it belongs. God's Word is our rule for life.